Father, we, we thank you again that we have the privilege to study your word this morning. We thank you for the theme of the greatness of the Son of God and the glories of the saving work which he has accomplished and, Lord, which he is engaged in even now as our high priest. We pray that you would enlighten our hearts and our minds with your word this morning by your Holy Spirit and that you would spur us on to live according to that word. We pray that you would please be with us as we consider our text this morning. We thank you, Lord, and pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, let me just begin today by saying that we are not going to get through verse 18. I realized as I was studying the text this week, that was a rather ambitious uh, goal to try to get through uh, to the end of the, the chapter. So we're only going to look through verses 13, 10 through 13 this morning of, of chapter 2. But it, as we do that, I, I just want to ask you a question this morning, is, and that is when you do encounter trials in your life and disappointments, maybe difficulties, maybe the crosses that, that you have to bear in your life, are you ever surprised are you ever surprised? R.C. Sproul, a number of years ago, wrote a book called Surprised by Suffering. And I just thought, that's a very appropriate title. Because we as human beings, are we not surprised whenever we suffer? And, you know, it's not like it's never happened before, and yet we're surprised again, it seems like, whenever we, we struggle with, with suffering. And I think that's a very common human reaction uh, that we have when we do encounter difficulties in our lives. And so the writer to the book of Hebrews, he spends time this morning talking in our text this morning about Christ's suffering and what significance this has for believers. I mean, you think about these these Christians, you know, they're they're trying to grasp who this Jesus is. They're wrestling with uh difficulties in their life and and they're trying to grasp who this Jesus is. And, you know, they're they're being told that he's greater than the angels, and yet he had to come, and he had to suffer, and and he had to die. And we'll talk more about this in just a minute, but that just didn't compute in the mind of of a good Jew. And and so this this writer of this letter, this this pastor, he's very careful to address this and, and, and to help these believers. And so he lays out these profound statements of Christ's identity, but we must never forget that these statements are given in the context of a pastoral letter. I hope you see the pastor's heart that is behind this writer of of this letter. If you look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 22, Hebrews 13, 22, you, you see actually that the writer of this letter refers to this um, letter as a word of exhortation. It is a word of encouragement, if you would, that, that he's writing briefly to them. Now, that word exhortation or encouragement is a pericoletic, it's a pericoletic kind of epistle. You know, you, you've probably heard that term paraclete, uh, referred to by John of the Holy Spirit. He's the comforter, he is the helper, he's one who comes alongside. And, and that's what this letter is to be to these Christians. As we read these profound theological statements, they need to be understood in that way, that they are to bring us comfort in the midst of life's trials and sufferings 
and, and afflictions. And, and so he's not just giving us these statements that we might, you know, pontificate the magnificence of these statements. I mean, that's not a bad thing to do, but that's not where he wants us to stop. Rather, he, he's writing to encourage, to, to establish, and to strengthen those Hebrew believers in their faith. Because all theology is for life. Let me say that again. All theology is for life. It's, it's never, uh, Ian Hamilton put it this way, he said, it's never to be a brute chunk of fact. I thought, wow, what a statement. It's never to be just a brute chunk of fact. It's never to be a mere statement for cognitive reflection. Uh, it is to impact. It is to transform. It is to reshape how we think and how we, and we live. So, so that is the way it is with this letter to the Hebrews. So let's keep that in mind as we, as we look at this text uh, this morning. Um, and, and the statements that the writer makes is to encourage these Christians to continue on in their faith and, and not to turn back. Now, we don't face the same kind of particular pressures that, that they did. You know, they were losing their homes and their property. They were being put in jail. Um, and those things were difficult enough. But also, if you went from Judaism to be a Christian, you would have lost everything. I mean, everything. You would have lost your family. You would have lost your, your worship. You know, it wasn't just like going to church on Sunday type thing for, for a Jew. You know, it was, it was their identity. And, and, and so they gave up everything to, to, to follow Christ. And, and we all face, I think, in different ways, uh, temptations to turn back from Christ, to abandon faithfulness to Christ. And for us, as Americans, it may be that what we're being tempted with is an easier life. And I think increasingly so, that's going to be the case in our society, that in subsequent generations, that, that what Christians will face is the temptation to opt for an easier life rather than following Jesus Christ. That what they'll do is they'll just trim their commitment to Christ just a little bit. He, he's no longer my all, he's just a part of my life. And perhaps we may even be tempted to hide our commitment to Christ um, at, at some point in time. And so while our struggles aren't the same as those of the Hebrew Christians that he's writing to, we do need to take these things to heart because we also wrestle with the temptation to turn from Christ, even if it may be in such subtle ways we may not even recognize it. And so as we come to our text, I, I want us to do so, just being reminded of what we looked at last week. We, we talked about how Adam had forfeited his rule over uh, the created order by rebelling against God in the Garden of Eden. But then Jesus comes as the second Adam, and he accomplishes what Adam could not. And, and so that all things, absolutely everything, was placed under Jesus' feet by the Father. And even when it doesn't look like it, even when there are things in life that, that don't make sense, you know, we need to understand that, that everything has been placed under Christ's feet, the writer of Hebrews tells us, and that Jesus will rule in the world to, to come. And as the God-man the mediator of the new covenant, Jesus has been crowned, as we saw in verse 9, with glory and with honor. And he has been so crowned because of his suffering and his death. Now, as I said before, 
to a Jew, this just would not make sense. If Jesus is so much greater, then why did he have to come to this world and suffer? No angel has ever done that. No angel has ever died. And, and yet, so why did Christ have to do that? And besides, does not Deuteronomy 21, 23 say, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree? And so that's why for the Jews, the cross was, was a stumbling block that God's Messiah and the cross in the minds of the of Jew were sort of mutually exclusive. How could he be the Messiah, the one that delivers his people, if he's cursed of God? And so, you know, this question haunts them. And, and so the writer seeks to, to answer this. Now, you know, we actually see this still, this kind of thinking alive today in our culture. I mean, with unbelievers, is, as you talk with people about their faith and and God, and Christ, and salvation. Do you notice that more and more people are confused? What, what, what do you mean Jesus has to die for my sins? I don't, I don't understand that. You know, they, they just don't have a category for that because the cross just seems foolish. One, they don't see that they have sinned, but they also don't understand what a man on a cross thousands of years ago has to do with them. But, but it's not just unbelievers. Even mainline denominations and, and some that would call themselves evangelicals speak of Jesus' death on the cross as things like divine child abuse of things that are, are foolish. And so there are those, even those that would call themselves Christians who are denying the substitutionary death of Christ. And so we need to pay attention to these things that, that he's saying. And so the author takes up his concerns and shows how absolutely fitting is this method of salvation that God has provided through his son in Jesus Christ. Calvin comments that what the author wants is for the godly to see that Christ's humiliation is glorious. That even Christ in his suffering is a glorious thing because that will have impact on how we see our own suffering that we go to, through as well. And so that rather than being embarrassed by the suffering Messiah, that we should see his suffering as glorious to God, that there is a divine purpose to Jesus' suffering. And that's what we're going to see as we look beginning in verse 10. And, and as, you, as you look at this verse, you see that the Father's purpose in, in, in Christ's suffering is to, as he states it, to bring many sons to glory. Now, now the question is, how does he do that? How is he to bring those who have fallen in Adam, who were sinners, who lived in rebellion against God? How does the Father plan to bring these folks to his glory? Now, I, I want you to notice something here that could easily be missed when he says that he brings many sons to glory. That's very significant. That's not the language we talk about lots of times today. In the church, we talk about people being saved. You know, almost like all we're talking about it's how they're justified before God. But, but in this whole idea of God bringing many sons to glory, it's the completeness of salvation. It's not only being made right with God and being justified before him, but in that, packed in that little phrase, is the whole idea that God will keep us faithful in sanctification, that he will help us to understand and live in our adoption and our union with Christ, and even that he will keep us faithful to the end. Is that not glorious? I don't know about you, but as I walk as a pilgrim in this world, it is a battle. It is a struggle. You know, sometimes 
you get very tired. Sometimes you think, Lord, am I going to continue on? But God is bringing many sons to glory. That which he has begun, as Paul tells us, to, wrote to the Philippians, he will complete, right? Because he is the author of our faith. And so through the person and the work of Jesus Christ, he does that. But Jesus had to become incarnate and suffer. And I want you to see how unusual this is. I mean, even when God brought Israel, we've been reading in Exodus about how God is bringing the Israelites out of Egypt, right? And, and when he brought Israel out of Egypt and into the land of Canaan, he did so by great might and by great power. He conquered all their enemies. But when God decided to bring many sons to glory, might and power alone would not be sufficient. It would be fitting that God the Father should send his son as the trailblazer for their salvation and perfect him through suffering. Now, please don't hear me say that I didn't think that God's might was enough. That's not what I'm saying. It's just not the sheer expression of might that we might look at, but his might looked very differently and was easy for people to, to miss. And so I want us to look at three reasons why it was fitting or appropriate for Jesus to suffer, why he suffered in order that he might bring many sons to glory. The, the first we see is, is that Jesus' suffering was planned by God. It was part of God's plan. It says in verse 10, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory, okay? Now, that's a, that's a very wordy way of just saying God. Why didn't he just say, you know, why does he go to such lengths to describe God the Father? Why didn't he just simply say it was fitting for the Father in bringing many sons to glory to make the founder of their salvation perfect? Well, let me suggest it's because the author of Hebrew wants us to recognize that God is supremely great. That, that all things were made by him. He is the creator of all things. They were made for him. And as the writer of Romans says, Paul says, also through him as well in uh, Romans chapter 11. And, and many people forget this. You know, they, they have such a small view of God and, and a very inadequate view of God as well. And so you might hear people say things like, well, I could never serve a God who, and then fill in the blank. I could never serve a God who would let a tornado go through Nashville, Tennessee, and kill 25 people. I could never let a God, I could never serve a God who would allow his son to die on the cross. Now, those statements are pro problematic in, in many ways. First of all, because... And in that, people don't recognize who God is. You know, they don't understand we are just creatures. You know, we are not the creator. God is the one who made us. He has always existed. And so for us to stand in judgment of God, I forgive me, but it's laughable. Because God is so great. He is so superior. And so when they stand in judgment of God, it's just ridiculous. But also, such statements don't really tell us much about God. It only tells us about our perception of God. It just, you know, I hate to say this, but it just sort of, you know, exposes our ignorance about who God really is. And so the writer of Hebrews wants us to see God for who he really is and to recognize that God the Father, from whom everything exists, 
is the one who carries out his perfect plan. And his plan includes the death and the suffering of Jesus Christ. It, it was no accident. The incarnation and suffering of Jesus were the design of Almighty God. It was planned in the eternal councils of the Godhead before the world was created. God saw Jesus' suffering as, as fitting, as, as right, as appropriate. It, it was a suitable thing to happen because it accomplished the overarching purpose and plan of God. And if all these things are by him and for him and his purposes are perfect and nothing is able to thwart the purposes of God, then it is absolutely fitting for Jesus to become the incarnate and die on the cross. Now, that phrase, by whom and for whom all things exist, it's, it's not so much a, a doctrinal statement planted in the midst of an argument. It's really the reason why Jesus suffered and died. If there was any other way to bring many sons to glory, the one by whom and for whom all things existed would have designed it that way. But there is no other way that God could pardon sinners that was true to his own nature and purpose. And I want you to hear that. You know, people oftentimes that want to say, well, you know, Jesus could, something else, God could have done this a different way. They really don't understand the nature and the character of God. Or they don't understand the nature and the character of sin. But once God had purposed to save sinners, the sufferings of Christ were necessary. And because there was no other way that their sin could be dealt with, and they be fitted for God's presence, Jesus had to suffer. The death of Jesus achieves that goal. The, the second reason we see that Jesus suffered is Jesus' suffering provides the way to God. Okay, look at the end of verse 10. He says, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation. And they should make him perfect. But he, he refers to Jesus as the founder of their salvation. Now, some of your translations if you're not using the ESV, may say author. I think the NIV and the New American Standard use that word author of their salvation. The Greek word here refers to one who himself first takes part in that which he establishes. Okay, now that may sound a little confusing, but if you write that definition down, I'll give you an example. I think it'll make it more clear. It, it refers to one who himself first takes part in that which he establishes. Uh, for example, a man who founds a family and then others are born into it. He establishes that family and then others partake in it. Or it could be a person who, who uh, uh, um, establishes a city. And so he marks out a city, starts that, and then he is part of that as others come to, to join as well. And, and commonly it was used of a pioneer who blazed a trail for others to follow. Now, kids, the idea of a pioneer or trailblazer, I'm sure, is familiar to you if you've studied American history, right? Now, you, you had to cover at some point in time some of these people who had done that. And as these pioneers went out west, was that easy? No, not at all. Oftentimes there was much danger, you know, from animals or, or it might have been from uh, Indians or from disease or whatever it might starvation. There's a lot of, but take, for example, Lewis and Clark, okay? They led a, 
a small group of men, and they were looking for that Northwest Passage, that, that place where they could get to the coast of the United States. So they had to cross the Rocky Mountains, which was very difficult. But once they had blazed that trail, and they made it possible for others to travel from coast to coast, which was uh, a huge in terms of the development of our country. And, and in many ways, when we think of the work of Jesus for our salvation, it's appropriate for us to think of him as a pioneer or a trailblazer, that Jesus has gone where we could not go. He has faced difficulties that we could not face. For example, death. He overcame and he conquered death by his own righteousness and truth and all conquering life. He has opened up the way for us to go to heaven, has he not? So he is our trailblazer. Uh, uh, Paul refers to him as the firstborn of many brothers. Uh, John Owen points out that Jesus went before us in, in three ways. He said he went before us in obedience, in completely obeying and fulfilling God's holy law. He went before us in his suffering, leaving us an example to follow. And he went before us into glory through his resurrection. He has shown us that the death is defeated and uh, therefore we have hope. Because he went through suffering into glory, he will take his people through that same path, that same course. And so he is leading many sons to glory. So, so Christ not only uh, suffered because it was God's plan, and, and also as well as we, uh, we see that it provides a way to God, but, but Jesus' suffering also makes him the perfect sacrifice. In verse 10, we read that God perfected Jesus the pioneer of our salvation through suffering. Now, at first you might read that and go, wait, what do you mean? Was Jesus not perfect? I mean, the answer is yes. If you look back at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says that he, that is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And we know that God is one who is without sin. So he is perfect in his divine attributes and he is perfect in his moral obedience. But to be qualified as the, the, the pioneer, the leader of our salvation, he had to experience the suffering that humans go through as a result of the fall. To be our perfect substitute, he had to be without sin himself. But he had to experience life as a human in this fallen world. To be our perfect sympathetic high priest, which we'll talk more about when we get to, to chapter 4, especially verse 15. He had to be tempted in every way in which we were. And so Jesus has become his people's perfect savior, opening up their way to God in order that he must, he must endure suffering and, and death. And so God saved you. So God saved you by perfecting his son through suffering. So should it surprise us that he prepares us for glory through suffering. If Jesus Christ had to suffer, does it not stand to reason that we would suffer if we were in union with him? And since he saved you through the suffering of his son, should we not also suffer as well? As we, as we look at the end of the text, uh, or verse 11, we see that, that Christ in saving us, he does so so that we might be holy, so that we might be sanctified. 
For he who sanctifies, that is Christ, and those who are sanctified, that, that is us, are one source. And that is why he is not ashamed to call us brothers. Now, now think about this. As, as you encounter the difficulties in your life, the, the, the trials, the crosses that you bear, those times when you are tempted just to give up. Maybe you're just tired in the battle of the Christian life. Um, notice here that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. He is the natural son. We're adopted children, if you would, but he's not ashamed of us. And, and if we were honest, even as we came this morning, as we had a time of silence to confess our sins to him, uh, we were basically just giving a list of reasons why he should be ashamed of us and for the things that we have done against him. Um, and so there's many reasons, but he's not ashamed because our salvation brings glory to God the Father. He, he took up our humanity that we might see and even share in his glory. We are so beloved to him that he died for us, bringing many sons to glory. So I want you to see this morning the great love that your older brother has for you as he has come to suffer on your behalf. And, and the writer of Hebrews drives this point home by looking at the Old Testament. Uh, first at Psalm 22. And, and Psalm 22, when we read the context, especially you know the entire Psalter, it's, this is clearly a messianic uh, psalm. And it points to Christ's death, but also to his resurrection. And uh, as a matter of fact, Jesus quoted the words of verse 1 in this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me when he was on the cross? And yet, after the Messiah undergoes tremendous suffering, he's vindicated in receiving life from the dead. And, and you see that particularly in Psalm 22 and verses 19 through, through 24. Yet, as the author of Hebrews applies that text to, to Christ, this risen Messiah invites his brothers to join in the celebration of the finished work of salvation. And so we, we read in verse 12, I will tell of your name to my brothers. This is Christ speaking. To my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Actually, verse 12 literally concludes with, I will sing hymns in the church. That's what it means. Because the word that is used there for congregation is the word for church and and the word for praise is the word for hymn or or praise to god and so he concludes that i will sing my hymns to the church what's interesting is is that you know we talk all the time well maybe i shouldn't say all the time but you you hear in churches where we'll call each other brothers and sisters in christ and and we read that christ refers to us as, as our brothers, but that is something really that is very unique to this side of the cross, if you think about it. Um, before the cross, Jesus referred to his followers as disciples, as friends, even as sheep, but they were never called brothers, not until after his resurrection. And, and that's because we cannot be his brothers until after the cross when sin our sins have been paid and the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us. Then we are brothers in the sense of being righteous because of the righteousness that he has given to us. 
And so he uses this quote to show that, that we are his brothers. But then he also quotes from Isaiah 8, verses 17 and 18. And Isaiah, if you know anything about Isaiah, he was exhorting the people to trust God. And, and I have to tell you, there's, you know, we, like, when we had their Presbyterian meeting here a week ago, we had a man who, uh, who, is, came, who came under care of our presbytery to pursue the gospel ministry. We had another man who was licensed to preach the gospel. And, and as he was, as uh, Billy was standing here to be uh, licensed, they gave him a charge. They gave him a call and, uh, you know, to, uh, to preach the word faithfully and so on and so forth. But I just think about calls in the Bible that you see. And some of them scare me to death. And Isaiah is one of those. Isaiah was one of those men that the Lord's like, who am I going to send? And he said, send me. And he says, okay. He said, well, I'm going to tell you what. I'm, you're going to go and you're going to preach the gospel to my people. Oh, and by the way, nobody's going to listen and you're not going to have any converts. Now, I don't know any preacher that would just be thrilled about that. But sometimes God's purposes are greater than our purposes and what he's doing is greater. And so Isaiah was exhorting the people to trust the Lord, but they rejected his message. However, God promised Isaiah that his sons would follow in this faith. And then he's pointing ultimately to the virgin who would give birth to a child. And we know that that child is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in light of those promises, Isaiah says that I will put my trust in him. I will put my trust in God. I and the children God has given to me. And so by applying these words to Jesus, as the Holy Spirit does that here in Isaiah, he's telling us that like Isaiah's children, you know, um, we are the testimony to God's faithfulness in the present generation. We are children of God given to the Lord Jesus Christ, called to testify amongst this present generation to the reality of salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. You know, it's fitting that for God to send his son to die on the cross and to suffer. But I hope you also see this morning that it is fitting for us to be his witnesses and how fitting it is for us even to bear the scorn of this world the way that Jesus Christ did by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, when we go through difficulties in life, when we bear our crosses, when we are struggling with the circumstances of our life, when people speak ill things of us and we get very offended or hurt by those things and we are tempted to complain and grumble and gripe because of the things that are said to us, that it's only appropriate that we suffer for the sake of Christ. And how fitting it is for us, even as Jesus sang praises to his church, for us to sing praises out of the fullness of our hearts and to declare his name, not only to our brothers and sisters who are in the congregation here, but also to the world in which we live. So let me ask you this morning. Christ is not ashamed to us to call us brothers. Are we ashamed of him? Are we ashamed of him? Are we ashamed of him as we talk and tell the world about who he is? One last passage. If you turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1, looking at verse 8. The Apostle Paul ties together this idea wonderfully. 
he says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. But then he goes on and he says, But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. That's what the writer of the Hebrews is saying here. Don't be ashamed of who Jesus Christ is, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to be holy, to be sanctified, as we saw in verse 11. And then skip down to verse 12, and he says, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what he has entrusted to me. Brothers and sisters, may we be unashamed in our testimony to Christ and the gospel. For through our witness, he will bring many sons to glory, to the praise of his name. Amen. Please bow your heads with me, if you would, for a time of meditation. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you were willing to come and to suffer and to die in our place. And now, Lord, as we encounter uh, similar difficulties and and struggles and, and suffering in our lives, we pray that we might look to you, knowing that we are in union with you, that, Jesus, you bear our burdens and that we can cast those upon you and I pray Lord today for any that may be here today that may be weary in their in their uh, walk with you Lord and those that are are looking to to trim their life so that the 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 difficulties of following Jesus aren't as evident where they're really focusing more on the blessings of God and not upon the cost of, of following you uh, Lord we pray that you would encourage those folks to to continue on to to follow you knowing that you are one who understands our suffering you are one who has gone through those things and that you will give us the strength that we need we thank you lord jesus and pray this in your name amen let's uh